Well, my name is Terry Fakes, and I want to welcome you to some of Crossing's midweek educational services. This new series we're about to start is a series on the books of First and Second Kings from the Old Testament. Now, the books of First and Second Kings really give us a ringside seat to something that I think I'm very interested in discussing. I know the Bible is very interested in discussing it, and that is when faith or the lack thereof, comes in contact with real world problems. You see, the kings of ancient Israel had some very high highs, they had some great successes, but they also had some very low lows. They had situations where the literal extinction of their people was at stake. So there were some unbelievably difficult circumstances. Now some of those kings um, were just fantastic successes. And some of those kings were colossal failures. And so I think this series gives us an opportunity to look at what was the role of faith and how did their faith shape the reaction to circumstances? A very timely topic in our unprecedented times. I'm gonna spend a little more time than I usually do on the context. I always want to set this in basically the history and the geography and the politics and the economics of the time so that you can see this teaching in its original context. I want to spend a little more time though for two reasons. One, actually by setting up the era of the kings of Israel, you actually provide a nice little structure and roadmap for the entire Old Testament. So we're gonna take a few minutes to do that, and I think this will be helpful because it'll put some key dates in your mind, and we'll literally string together many of the books of the Old Testament, and I think it'll help you see how it fits. The second reason for doing that is it's important when we get to these kings that we understand that they all inherited a very long 400 to 800 year legacy of faith or of doubt and a legacy of their people being used by God. And so each king comes into a situation not fresh, not I'm king now and I'll do whatever I want to do. They each come in bearing that history with them that shapes and informs how they're going to confront the world. So let's start by going back in time to about the time of Moses. So let me position this in the Old Testament as long as we're gonna walk through it a little. The book of Genesis, first book in your Old Testament, starts with creation, think Adam and Eve, think Noah and the flood, think Abraham, that unique individual, his son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, maybe one of the most famous was named Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers and ended up in Egypt. The book of Genesis ends at that point. And we see all of the early Israelites, all of the descendants of uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of Jacob's family are in Egypt. And this happens around 1800 BC. Now for the purposes of this series, I'm gonna use traditional dates and I'm gonna round them off a little to make this just easier to frame for you. 
There are a lot of disputes about some of these dates, and while those disputes are very interesting, I've never found them to be terribly edifying. So we're going to stick with the traditional dates because my point is not so much the dates, it's the structure that this is gonna allow. So the Israelites, and I'll circle on the map, they were right in that area, and they were enslaved in Egypt from 1800 BC down to about 1400 BC. In 1400 BC, we enter the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and God has chosen this man Moses and sent him to Egypt as a deliverer. You may remember the basic story of Exodus is this group of slaves and this man Moses confronts Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world at that time, and against all odds, God judges the gods of Egypt, God brings so much economic uh, hardship and punishment on Egypt that actually this group of slave people leave Egypt. This particular map kind of shows you that route. One of the first things they do is when they leave, they go into the Sinai Peninsula down to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God gives the Israelites, the Jewish people, I'm gonna use those terms interchangeably, the law of Moses. And that's where you see some of the other books. After Exodus is Leviticus, which is kind of a telling of that law. Uh, Numbers follows that, which is some of the time when they're wandering in the desert. You see, they spend about 40 years making their way to the land that God had promised to Abraham so many centuries before. And so during this time of the Exodus, they come together and it is a unifying event for the people. These kings all inherited a people called the Israelites, the children of Abraham. They come from this period of time and this event is what really brings them together as a distinct people. In the book of Deuteronomy, you read this. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations and decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? In other words, why do we have this law from God, this law of Moses, this Torah, other ways of saying the same thing? He said, why do we as a people above every other people in the world have this covenant, this relationship, these commandments from God? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The thing I wanna make a point about here as we move through history is in about 1400 BC, this exodus occurs and the people make their way to the border of the promised land. The faith that the Jewish people have in their God, had in their God, and again, this is also a lesson for us, isn't just reliant upon blind hope. In other words, it's rooted in historical events and it's rooted in promises that God has kept. 
Our faith requires trusting God even when we don't see the results, even when we have no guarantee of the results, but it is not a blind leap of faith into the unknown. This Exodus event where God miraculously did something that's never since uh, and never before been heard of in history is bringing these people out of Egypt was a marker in time. And it was a monument, if you will, to God's faithfulness. And so what Moses is saying here in this quote in Deuteronomy is, when you look to the challenges in front of you, you can know that your faith is rooted in things God has already done. And that's an important thing to remember because all of the kings we're gonna talk about, you and I, all the Christians alive today can turn around and look back in history, maybe it's looking back in our lives, certainly looking back into biblical history, and we can see that our faith is based on promises that God has kept in the past. And so the Exodus is important for that. Moving on in time, the Israelites at the end of their wandering, and on this map I'm gonna show you they come just to the east of the Jordan River, right across from the city of Jericho, and they stop there. And they've wandered for 40 years in the desert, Moses is with them, and Moses is about to die before they go into the Promised Land. And the book of Deuteronomy is after, 40 years after the Exodus, now we're at the fifth book of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, is looking back and reminding the people of what they've been through. He repeats the law of Moses to them, God's commandments and precepts, and adjures them to keep God's commandments. And so as they're on the verge of looking into this promised land and they see in this promised land, they're already populated with tribes that have better weapons, that are more established, that have fortified cities, and they begin to wonder, can God really pull this off? And so in Deuteronomy chapter seven, Moses says this, you may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are, how can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh in all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with the, which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the people that you fear. What's Moses saying? He's looking in the rearview mirror. And frankly, most of the time, faith is found looking in the rearview mirror. It's rare when we're going through things that we have the sense to realize in that moment, particularly the difficult things in life, that God is forming faith in this moment. But when we can look in the rearview mirror and see behind us, and that's exactly what he's doing. He said, look, you just came out of the desert. You just came 40 years ago out of Egypt. I want you to look in the rearview mirror for a minute, and I want that to bolster your faith. And that's a lot of times where our faith is formed, is from looking back, seeing the faithfulness of God. And so that's what Moses is saying to the people. He's saying, you have a big challenge in front of you, and so before you face that, I want you to turn around and look back and remember what God has done. 
And I can't think of a better lesson for us today, frankly, as Christians, as we look at our world, and there are a variety of challenges in our world. As we look at our lives, and each of us faces individual challenges in our lives, I think Moses' advice to the Israelites is timely for us as well. And before you head into the battle ahead of you, before you head into that challenge, take just a moment, turn around and look back and remember where God has been faithful in your life. And then when you turn back to the challenges, they don't seem that big. Your God was big enough for everything that he's led you through this far. He is big enough for what's in front of you. That's what Moses is assuring the Israelites. Well, Moses died and we move in then from the book of Deuteronomy into the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is about this young man, Joshua, who's actually given the job of leading the Israelites into this, uh, the promised land. And so in Joshua one, you read this, and I just want to read this to you because I want you to notice that God is not just gonna link faith and confidence about the future with what happened in the past. He's going to link it also to the way we approach what we're about to endure. Watch what I'm telling you. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, has died. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be very careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or turn from it to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. I want you to meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified, don't be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This is written in about uh, roughly 1400 BC, and it's just as timely today as it was then. So what is God saying in this when he's, when he's really encouraging Joshua? He's saying, you, can not only look back and see that I've been faithful. And so when you look at the challenges in front of you, I want you to do it through the eyes of faith that has been formed in your past. But he says that also has a bigger implication. It means you don't need to be discouraged. You don't need to be afraid. I want you to take courage because I am with you wherever you go. If you remember, the great commission in Matthew chapter 28, one of the last things Jesus says to his disciples, and he says uh, the great commission itself is, you know, go therefore into all the world, making disciples of all the nations, uh, teaching them to obey all the commands I have given you, which is interesting, isn't it? Because that's what God is saying to Joshua all those centuries before is, remember the commands that I gave you, obey them, be faithful. Jesus is saying, teaching them to obey all the things I've told you, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And listen, he says, I will be with you even to the end of time. 
And so the idea for confidence as they go into this promised land in face of what looked like very real challenges, the same basis for our confidence as we go into a future that's fraught with unknowns and uncertainties and, and our fear level rises just like theirs was. He said, you know I've been faithful in the past. You know that I've been up to every challenge in your life so far. You know that I've done things that you can't even comprehend how those things could have been done. You know that I am an awesome God. And so not only should you be assured of that, you also know that I literally am with you in this. I am with you. I'm not a far off God who said, go invade that land or Christians, go and be witnesses or go face the trials in your life and I'll be here, tell me how it all turns out when you come back. No, what he's saying is, you have a basis for courage. You have a basis for confidence and that basis is that I'm actually going with you where you go. Well, the Israelites do indeed invade the land and they have some mixed results. And the reason for the mixed results is because of their faith or their lack thereof. And so when the book of Joshua ends, you end with kind of a mixed result. And on this map, this is a map of the judges of Israel because the next book in the Old Testament is the book of Judges. And I want you to think about this time period from about 1400 BC down to about 1000 BC. This is the traditional dates for the time of Judges. What is this time period? What is that book about? It's where the Israelites, the tribes go into the territory and they do defeat a number of the tribes, but they don't defeat them all. Their faith fails them. They do get discouraged. And so in the time period of the Judges, this map's interesting because this, notice where all these Judges lived. They kind of lived right in between those two lines I've just drawn. In those two lines, it's very hilly and kind of mountainous, maybe not Rocky Mountain mountainous, but kind of mountainous. The really good land is over here on the coastal plain. This is desert on this side. And you notice that all they've really been able to do is eke a living out of these mountainous regions. And so they've got a fairly precarious foothold in the promised land. They really haven't been as successful as they intended to be. They really weren't willing to do this God's way. As you read through the book of Judges, what you'll realize is they basically, once they hit that challenge, and after some successes and after a little challenge and then looking at some of the other tribes, their resolve ebbs away and they basically settle in to almost 400 years of a very uneasy half-life kind of existence. It's not a life of faith, it's not a life of total doubt, but it's certainly not a vibrant life of following God, in which case they're just clinging to existence and probably the worst part of the promised land. Here's what Judges says that kind of sums up this time period. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. In other words, the various judges would raise up and push back some of the oppressors of the Israelites for a little while kind of like a, a down payment on faith, if you will. It's like God saying, you know, some of these great, like Gideon and Samson and Deborah and some of these heroes, if you will, that said, look, we trust God, God's going to 
be true to his promises and they have some success, usually for about a generation until people fall back into doubt. And that's what happened over and over. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with that judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, did God stop being with them? No, what happened? The people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. So what's happening here? Basically, they, they, their faith fails them and they begin to grab for other things to give them certainty. Boy, that's still true today too, isn't it? When things don't go our way, we are really quickly to desert the God who got us here. And there are times when we'll just go grab for you know, any port in a storm. Uh, what might be able to do this? We have the most superstitious things that we do. We cling to some of the most un, uh, you know, unworthy ideas. And we too are really tempted to bail out. Do you remember in the New Testament, here's a great example of that. You remember in the New Testament when Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples are in the boat, very famous story, and he's coming up walking to them on the water on the Sea of Galilee and it's a little bit stormy out there and they're like, oh my goodness, what is this? And they said, it's a ghost. And, and Jesus says, I'm, I'm not a ghost, guys, it's me. And Peter says, well, if it's really you, then tell me to come out and I'll walk on the water too. And he said, sure, come on, Peter. And Peter gets out and he starts to walk on the water. And what happens to him? This is like the Israelites. This is like me. This is, like, this is the story of faith confronting events in our lives. The Israelites go into hardship and what did Peter do? He looks around and when he saw the waves and he saw there was a chance that I'm gonna drown if I, if I fall in here, his faith faltered and he began to sink. What happened? Jesus reached out and caught him immediately. I mean, this is the message, the same message, is we look around at our circumstances and we let them start to erode our trust. And we begin to think, oh, what if? What if? And our fear and our anxiety begin to overcome us a little bit. We basically, like Peter, take our eyes off of God and put our eyes on our troubles. That's exactly what the Israelites did. They knew God could defeat these enemies. But when they would get into this land and they were face to face with their trials, they lost sight of God and put their gaze and their focus on their problems. And that is a prescription for disaster then and now. When we put all of our attention on our problems and our challenges, we are not going to remember that faith in our rearview mirror. We're not gonna be strong to overcome it. It's going to feed the fear inside us. That's exactly what happened to the Israelites and they weren't successful. Well, as time goes on, about 1000 BC, now we're gonna move from the book of Judges into the books of First and Second Samuel. It's just two books about the last great judge of Israel and his name was Samuel. And the people at that time said, look, if we're gonna be militarily successful, 
We need a king who can bring a standing army together. Well, Samuel opposes this idea, but God said if they want that, then give them a king. What were they really doing? They were putting their confidence in their king and in his military prowess, weren't they, instead of in God. And so it's still a sign of their lack of faith, but God says, I will give you a king. And God begins to work through these kings in order to bring Israel back to faith. And so if we evaluate the kings of Israel, here's a simple way to evaluate it. A good king led Israel back to having greater trust in God, and a bad king led Israel to place their trust in other things. Well, Samuel chooses their first king, his name's Saul. Saul has kind of got a mixed record. But I want to focus on the next king, and his name is David. And so you, in the second Samuel, the second book of Samuel, you'll see a lot of the story about David. David is not the king I want to talk about now, but we need to talk about him. Because this is what God said to him. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. Remember David, the shepherd boy, defeats Goliath, uh, flees from Saul, goes through incredible hardships in life. He said, God says you're gonna be king and he thinks he's gonna die. He thinks God has left him out here and Saul is trying to kill him and yet David's always faithful. David's always doing it God's way and David never loses sight that God is going to do what he said he would do. And God said, I took you from a, a, a shepherd watching your sheep and you're now ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. 400 years before that, remember this is 1000 BC and 1400 BC, that's what God said to Joshua. And here he is now saying it to David again. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of earth, and I'll provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they can have a home of their own, no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, a dynasty. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. David is a great character for a lot of reasons. But in about 1000 BC, what happens is David, because he trusts God, and he is willing to confront the enemies of Israel, conquers all of the promised land, and then some. I'll show you a map in a second, but in David's time, God gives him success against all of their enemies, and he does, he accomplishes what 400 years before the Israelites failed to do, and that is, to occupy the land that God had promised to them. This is the golden age of Israel's history, the 10th century BC with David and his son Solomon. I wanna talk about Solomon a little bit. Solomon, after David's death, inherits a kingdom that is at peace. Solomon expands it a little bit, but God used David to conquer this land. 
And Solomon comes in in a time of peace, a time of prosperity, a time when it looks like God's promises have finally been delivered to the Israelites. You would expect it to be a time of great faith in God, of seeing God doing what he said that he would do. Well, as Solomon takes over from his father, what kind of a man is he and what kind of a king will he be? Well, at the beginning of his reign, here's the description from the book of 1 Kings chapter three. When he was at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because, why? Because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. I want you to remember that. Why did God, was God with David? Because he was faithful. We'll have more to say about that in a minute. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great nation, too numerous to count. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be again. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime, you will have no equal among the kings. Solomon loved God. Solomon followed in his father David's footsteps. Solomon longed to be faithful to God. He took the commands of Moses and he was careful to walk in those commands, to be obedient to the things that God had asked him to do. He sought justice and righteousness with the people. Well, how did that turn out? Well, as we read on in 1 Kings, and I wanna show you as long as we're here with this map, this is in the context of the international arena, but look at this area in green that David and Solomon have conquered. That is the promised land. And all of the nations around there were paying them tribute. Now, David and Solomon were not imperialistic. In other words, David and Solomon conquered the boundaries of the promised land. They didn't go conquer Egypt. They didn't go into the north and conquer Mesopotamia. They didn't go conquer Saudi Arabia or anyone else. They weren't so much imperialistic as fulfilling the promise that God gave them. And Solomon indeed became incredibly prosperous and so did all of his people. Listen to this from 1 Kings chapter four. Now the people of Judah and Israel, talking about the Israelites in the promised land, were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Solomon's daily provisions, and it goes on to list how much his daily provision, and the point of this is Solomon had a huge international court. 
Solomon was doing business with people all over the world. If you remember some of the stories from the book of 1 Kings where the queen of Sheba comes to offer a tribute to Solomon and test his great wisdom and discernment in international affairs. How Solomon makes alliances with a number of the nations and not only was Israel at peace, this whole region was at peace during that time. So what you see is a golden age in the time of the Israelites and you see that they had two faithful kings in a row and God was able to use those faithful kings to bring about his promises. But the story doesn't end there. One of the things I wanna stop here though and talk about is I, there are two conclusions you can draw from what's happened with David and with Solomon. And one of the conclusions is simply this. It's kind of a form of ancient prosperity theology. It's the idea that if Solomon is faithful to God, if Israel believes in God, trusts God, then God will make good things happen to them. In other words, it's almost like they're trading faith in God and he's giving them in return prosperity. That actually turns out to be untrue uh, pretty quickly, as we're gonna see that not all faithful kings had everything go their way. And we're going to see that uh, faith isn't a commodity be, to be traded for God's favor, his material blessings, if you will. That makes a faith less something that we offer to God and something that we try to barter with God. That, by the way, is the basis for almost all of the pagan religions of all time, today and in the past. And that is, I as a human will give you the God or God something that you desire if you will give me something I desire. God's promises are unilateral. God's promises were made true to Israel even when they weren't faithful. So this idea of, of Solomon is faithful, God is blessing him, and that's the trade that they have is really a, uh, not true. When you get into the New Testament, you'll see immediately that that's not the case. Here's a better way to think about it that's certainly obvious in the New Testament, but you'll see it rings just as true in the Old Testament, is faith is the currency through which God chooses to act in the world. Faith is the currency through which God chooses to act in the world. And here's what I mean by that, is God's will is going to be accomplished in this world. The question I have to decide is, if I am faithful, if I am obedient, if I surrender to God, then I become a useful part of God's work here. And that is what it means to be a good and faithful servant. If I am not faithful to God, my usefulness to God is pretty low or pretty limited. Now, God used evil people in history. He uses evil people today. Don't kid yourself, God's will is going to be accomplished in this world. But for you and me, for the Israelites of that time, for Solomon and David, everybody makes a decision of whether or not I'm going to be a useful part of what God is doing. You'll see that all through the Bible, all through present day times, God uses faithful people to accomplish his purposes. The reason that Israel is doing so well here is because God is wanting to show the world that 
my people are faithful people and look what I can do through faithful people. In other words, God's purpose was to lift Israel up in the eyes of the world. That is why he chose the Israelites. You're gonna be a nation of priests. You're going to be a witness to all the nations of who I am, of how holy I am, God says. And so when you see kings and people in Israel who are faithful, God is able to accomplish that through them. So your and my faithfulness in the little things and the big things are really what make us servants whom God can use to accomplish his purpose in the world. And there's no higher calling for us than to be good and faithful servants. Well, as Israel faces difficult times, they have a great opportunity to be a witness to the world, just like you and I do. Our greatest witness is when we face the most difficult times. When we have good times, it's easy to write that off as being caused by something else. When we're in bad times, like the Israelites in Egypt, like David conquering the Philistines against all odds, when you and I facing something that's bigger than we are, those are the times when people look at our lives and say, their God must be really something. And that's what God is doing with their faith, that's what God is doing with our faith. And Solomon was a faithful man for many years. He ruled, by the way, from 970 BC until 930 BC. Now near the end of his life, Solomon gets complacent in his faith. And that's what success can do to us. And that's what success did to him. He was wise, he was rich, he was powerful. Now before they ever came into the promised land, I wanna flash back to 1400 BC again. Remember Moses warning them one last word before you go into the promised land. Here's something else that God said to them. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, a large land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. When you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Well, that was a timely warning 400 years earlier, and if only Solomon had heeded that warning. Because you see, that's exactly what happened to Solomon. That's exactly what happened to the Israelites when they got a taste of that prosperity. And that went on for decade after decade after decade. They then began to forget the Lord. They began to take for granted that those blessings, that those things that they were experiencing were theirs by right. They were theirs by their superiority in some sense, that they were God's chosen people or they were very smart politicians or they were great farmers or whatever it may be. They began to fill in the reason for that with something other than God. And Solomon himself did the same thing. We go to 1 Kings chapter 11, we've now fast forward from the young man who asked for wisdom and whom God blessed his faithfulness and brought Israel to inherit exactly what he had promised. Now 40 years later, at the end of his life, 
we read this. Now, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. Why? Because they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. I have no comment on that verse whatsoever. Solomon grew old. His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, Molech is always called detestable because of human sacrifice. Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. This is a story of the peril of prosperity, and this is the lesson that I wanna take from Solomon's life. Now, Solomon did a lot of great things. Solomon was faithful. God was able to use his faith. But as we look at this, the first king that I wanna profile in our series is I wanna look at how faith comes up against circumstances. And you saw that Solomon's faith was sufficient for the hard times in his life, but Solomon's faith was not sufficient for the good times in his life. Now, when we think about our faith and we think about exercising our faith, we naturally usually think about that happening with the challenges in our life, and that's true. That is the time that our faith is tested, that's the time our faith is grown, that's the time our God is walking with us, that's the time our God is usually carrying us, isn't it? But Solomon is a cautionary note to remind us that sometimes the good times in our lives are the times when our faith is most at risk. And so for Solomon's legacy, he doesn't go down in history, uh, and he goes down for a lot of great things, for being wise, but ultimately he ends his life being just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. And you remember when I said that our faith is the currency that God uses to further his plans, that he chooses to use us, faithful servants, and we get to become part of what he is doing. Solomon, in forfeiting his faith and trading it for this prosperity, has become not useful to God. And Solomon began to look like everybody else. And when we start looking like everybody else, we're not very useful to God at all. And so Solomon is a warning to us that faith is tested in prosperity, faith is tested in hardship. And now when we look back in our rearview mirror, I hope that Solomon will, and his father David will be positive examples, but also be a warning to us that in the midst of living as Christians in the most prosperous nation, in all of history, in all of history, that we should expect that perhaps one of the greatest challenges to our faith will be our prosperity even more than will be our trials. So that's what happened to Solomon. 
So when we face challenges in our life, and whether those challenges are the challenge of, of uh, complacency, uh, the challenge of fear, the challenge of illness, the challenge of hardship in relationships, the challenge of disease, the challenge of grief, whatever the challenges may be in our life, I think a great lesson is this. Think back on God's faithfulness. The first thing to do is don't be discouraged, don't be afraid, but look backward in our rearview mirror and say, where has God been faithful to me in the past? Then when we look at those challenges, we look with the eyes of courage, not with the eyes of fear. The second thing is it's an opportunity to recommit our trust to God. You know, there's some people that say is faith is something that we recommit to every day. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I don't think faith, no, I don't think you believe this either, is something that I had at one time, I expressed at one time, and now it's with me wherever I go. It's sort of like maybe a poor example, but let's say it's your physical fitness, for example. None of us think, well, you know, I ran a marathon when I was 35 years old, so I'm probably good for the rest of my life. Well, of course not. You know that it doesn't work that way, is when you're in good physical shape, it takes continual struggles, exercise, pushing back against things to keep you in good shape. Faith is a little bit like that. Faith isn't something that you had when you walked an aisle when you were a child or you made a commitment uh, at some point in your adult life and now for some magical way your faith is sufficient for everything that comes to you. Faith is something that grows within us. Faith is something that increases as it's used. You remember Jesus talked about it like a mustard seed that grows into something big. He talked about it as kind of leaven in a loaf that it's a small thing, but it infects the entire loaf. Faith is something that if it's allowed to grow, if it's nurtured, if it's challenged, is something that will grow to infuse our entire life. And so when we see difficulties, we can be reminded of God's faithfulness in the past. And then secondly, let that be an opportunity to recommit our trust to God as we go into what appears to be unknown to us in the future. When I look at the life of Solomon, it's a cautionary tale that faith can't be taken for granted. It's something that we renew. It's a commitment that we make. It's a surrender we make every day. As Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross daily. We'll deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow me. That's the lesson from Solomon the king who led his country to the height of heights. But when he died, his son came along having watched all of this. And in our next lesson, we're going to see the second big challenge to faith in the history of Israel. And this one isn't prosperity, this one is pride. I'll see you next time.